Welcome to the Compelling Words Podcast. The Word of God is meant to move us. It's meant to call us to action. Listen in as Kevin Purdy teaches and presents a genuine and compelling message from the Word of God. Imagine, imagine being 17 years old and you've been invited to go on this amazing adventure. You've been invited, you're going to go on this 600-mile canoe trip through the Canadian wilderness. I mean, that sounds like an exciting adventure. And that's what a young man named Alex Messenger got to do. But what Alex did not know was that on day 29 of his trip, his life would forever be changed. That morning, as they were kind of getting up and kind of getting camp all ready for the day and stuff, he decided to go on a solo hike up on a mountain ridge behind where they were camping at. And some movement caught his eye. And at first he thought it was a musk ox. They had seen several of them through their canoeing trip, and he thought that's what it was, but he was wrong. And this is what he said. I made a far more horrifying realization. This was no musk ox. It was much worse. At this instant, the creature's gaze met mine. I was staring into the sharp black eyes of a grizzly bear. He was attacked by that bear, and he actually uh, managed to survive it. He later wrote a book about the experience called The 29th Day. The bear attack left some very vivid and very terrifying memories. A massive, strong claw raking across his back. A bone-rattling swipe knocking him to the ground. Sharp, piercing jaws clamping down on his thigh. He wrote it like this. Agony invaded every sense, every nerve and cell of my body. Involuntarily, I yelled, the awful pressure of teeth, the tearing of my flesh, the rending of muscle. I'm going to die, I thought. It was so wrong. The pain filled everything, and then suddenly it hit my kill switch. Mid-scream, mid-flinch, mid-bite, it all stopped. In that instant of that bite, everything turned to black. Silence, then nothing. He blacked out. He blacked out, and he was out, and when he came to, and his vision started to clear up, the bear was still there. But it was starting to walk away, occasionally looking back at him, and eventually it just walked off away. In the Bible, there's a very brief and very strange story about a bear attack. Um, it's in 2 Kings chapter 2. And it's only a couple few verses long. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. Here's what it says. It says, From there Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. He turned around, looked at them, called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. Now, 
It may be obvious, and I mentioned it last Sunday, but this is my favorite Bible story. (laughs) I mean, a bald-headed guy gets ridiculed and made fun of, and God brings two bears out of the woods to just tear them up. I'm not normally a violent person, but that's some good stuff. (laughs) I can preach a whole message about how you're supposed to be nice to bald people. Um, There's a few of us here this morning that are a little follically challenged, and we've heard all the jokes, uh, all the little snide quips and comments, you know, God is good, God is fair, to some he gave brains, to the rest he gave hair. Uh, It's been said, if a man is bald in front, he's good looking. If he's bald in back, he's a thinker. If he's bald all over, he just thinks he's good looking. (laughs) We've heard it before, hair today, gone tomorrow. You know, we've heard that. But I like this Bible story because if anybody ever kind of gives me a rough time about having no hair, I could just simply say, 2 Kings 2.24, remember the bears. (laughs) I I like that, but it's not really what the text is about. Um, It's really about a group of people that don't want God in their business. They don't want God in their business. It wasn't so much about a bald man being ridiculed as it was about people who were rejecting the message of God that was being brought to them. You've heard it before. You've heard, don't shoot the messenger for the message. Well, Elisha in this situation was the messenger. Elisha was the messenger. Elisha was a prophet. He was a successor to the prophet Elijah. It gets a little confusing because you have Elijah with a J sound, and then you have Elisha with an SH sound. Um, so Elisha was a successor to Elijah. Elijah got all the fame. He's the one that's known as one of the major prophets. He's the one that called fire down from heaven. He's the one that kind of got all of the attention. Uh, Elisha, however, kind of gets overlooked. E- even though Elisha actually did twice as many miracles as Elijah did, um, Elisha was still a teenager the day that Elijah called him to come and follow him. Uh, Elisha was in the field, and Elijah came to him and called him, and he served with Elijah from that day forward until the day that Elijah was mysteriously and miraculously taken up into the sky, presumably into heaven, It says Elijah was just miraculously taken up by this fiery chariot. And when Elijah had called Elisha to follow him, he took his cloak off and placed it over Elisha's shoulders. It was kind of a symbol of an anointing. Well, right after Elijah is taken up in this fiery chariot, right on the bank of the Jordan River, there was that cloak. That cloak was now what Elisha would wear. And everyone would know that Elisha was the new Elijah. He was the prophet now. 
Elisha was the prophet now that was speaking for God, speaking God's message to these people. And so Elisha continues the mission and the ministry of Elijah. And he decides to go to Bethel. Bethel was kind of known, but it wasn't known in a good way. It had a bad reputation. It had a reputation for some pretty intense idol worship. That's what the town was known for. Uh, King Jeroboam had placed an idol in Bethel, and it just so happens that the idol that he fashioned was made into a calf, a golden calf. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what the Israelites did when they got impatient with God after the Exodus. They made an idol out of into a golden calf. Jeroboam placed this idol here in Bethel, and the reason he did that was so that they had something to worship right there at Bethel, and they wouldn't have to make trips back to Jerusalem. So he did that, essentially, he did that to make it easier, to make it a little bit more convenient. And I I, I wonder sometimes, I, I wonder, do we sometimes adjust our worship to make it more comfortable or more convenient? Do we sometimes choose our preferences over what God actually commands? Do we sometimes worship a God that we accommodate to what we want instead of worshiping God for who he really is? I don't think that real, genuine worship I don't think real genuine worship is always all about making us feel good and uplifted. I've known people who will visit a church and experience worship and they'll come out and say, I didn't feel good with that worship. I don't know that worship is necessarily always supposed to make us feel all warm, good, and uplifted. I think worship is sometimes supposed to challenge us. It's supposed to convict us. And sometimes it's supposed to make us feel a little uncomfortable. When the prophet Isaiah saw the presence of God, do you remember what he said? He was given this vision of this throne room and where God sat. And he said, woe to me, I am ruined. When he experienced God in a very pure worship, his reaction was, man, I am ruined. I don't deserve to be here. I am not worthy of this. It made him very uncomfortable. Those that heard the very first message of the church, it says that they were cut to the heart. And Jesus said, if anyone was to come after him, if anyone was to follow him, they must take up their cross. The cross uh, most definitely was not a comfortable thing. And when Jesus said, you will take up your cross to follow me, it's essentially him saying, it's not going to be easy at times. It's going to feel hard, and there's going to be hardship and suffering and struggle. Is it possible that our Christian faith is too often too comfortable? I've told this story before, but I like it. There's a story about a barber, an old barber, who uh, felt like he had become too comfortable in his faith. 
And so he promised God that he would get out of his comfort zone, and he promised God the next person that comes in to get their hair cut tomorrow, I'm going to share my faith, and I'm going to witness with that person. And so the next day came, and first guy into the barber shop was this big, massive, rough-looking guy, tattooed biker, you know, and, and the barber just, he, he couldn't do it. He was too intimidated, too nervous about it, too scared. So he just gave him a haircut. And then throughout the day, it just didn't get any better. Everybody that came in, there was something that just kind of made him too uncomfortable, too nervous about it. And so finally, come 5 o'clock, the end of the day, he's feeling like he's messed up, like he's a failure. I haven't done this, God, I want to do this. So he begged God to give him one more chance, and ding, 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 the bell on the way in, hit, you know, came, came in, and in comes this gentle old man with a pleasant smile on his face. And the barber got excited, so he... He put shaving cream on the man's face, but he, he dropped the razor. He was trying to remember what he should say. He was nervous. He began to sweat. So he reached down. He picked up the razor, and he held it with a shaking hand, and he looked at the man and said, Are you prepared to die? <laughs> it's very easy and very tempting to want to settle in with a comfortable faith and never do anything that might cause us a little nerves or a little bit of uncomfortableness. Never step out into something that is challenging, something that requires a, a little bit of self-denial or something that is sacrificial. Sometimes we just want to settle into our faith and just be content and comfortable and we never want to be stretched or pushed or challenged or convicted. Bethel had become a place where the people chose comfort over truth. And because of that, they actually were worshiping idols rather than worshiping the one true living God. And now someone was coming that would challenge them and call them to something more. No doubt that when Elisha came, he would come in and he would condemn their idol worship. There's no doubt about that. There's no doubt that he would come into town and he would call them and tell them that they should repent and change. But they didn't want that. They didn't want to be confronted. They didn't want to be challenged. They didn't want to change anything. So some of the young men decided to meet Elisha on the road into town. And we need to be very careful about how we picture this. The NIV Bible, the New International Version of the Bible, says that it was some boys who ridiculed Elisha. The New American Standard Bible says that it was some young lads. And the King James Version says that it was little children. The Hebrew word that is used, the Bible was originally written in Hebrew, the Old Testament. The Hebrew word that is used in the authentic original Bible just means young. That's all it means is young. But it doesn't define how young young is. When I was 30 years old and I said someone's young, I meant they're a teenager, now that I'm 50 years old and I say someone's young, I mean they're 30. Some of you guys looking at me saying, I'm young. I don't feel young, but anyway, I like it when you call me young. That works. 
the same Hebrew word that was used there to say young men or young boys, the same Hebrew word was used to describe Isaac when he was about 20 years old. It was the same word used to describe Joseph when he was about 17. It was the same word that was used to describe Jacob when he fled from his brother Esau. It was the same word that was used earlier in Kings to describe a group of young men that went fighting in a battle. So we don't know exactly what young means. It was probably a very generic word. So we don't know. More than likely, though, More than likely, this was not a group of kids playing soccer at the park, and they just happen to see the prophet, and they get a little smart mouth with them. That's not what is happening here. This is more likely a large group of young, physically mature men who don't want the prophet coming into town, shaking up their comfort level, and telling them that they're wrong and they need to change their ways. That's the scenario here. They're probably very intentionally at the entrance to town trying to intimidate and even threaten Elisha. And they mocked him for being bald. And that can mean a a, a few different things. One of them could be very obvious. Elisha could have been bald. Um, It's estimated that he was probably no more than 25 years old. So if he's bald, then it's an early premature baldness, but that isn't all that uncommon, and I could speak from experience on that. Um, Elisha might have just been bald naturally. Um, Another possibility is that he may have shaved his head in mourning because his mentor, Elijah, he didn't die, but he was miraculously taken up by God, and without a doubt, Elisha mourned his absence, and it wasn't unusual for a Jewish man to shave his head in mourning as a sign of grief. Either way, no matter what actually it indicates, either way, it wasn't a good thing. It was meant maybe more than an insult. It it was definitely something said that was said with cruel intentions. It was either mocking Elisha himself or it was mocking his grief over Elijah. And what makes it even worse, what's even worse than them just saying, calling him bald-headed, what's even worse than that is they told him to go on up. To go on up. Uh, The NIV Bible translates that into get out of here. They told him to get out of here. I think that's accurate, but I think it also misses something. Because again, the actual Hebrew word does mean to go up or to ascend. And if that's what they said, then it's possible that this was much more than just get out of here. Uh, It's possible it was much more than that. Elijah, remember, had been taken up. He had been taken up. He was gone. And now they're telling Elisha, we don't want you either. Just like he was taken up and he's gone, we want you gone. Get out of here. Uh, Some Bible scholars even compare this to an actual physical threat. Because essentially Elijah died when he was taken up. And if they're telling Elisha now to go on up, it could very well be meant to be a literal physical threat. So it's possible that they're just angry and intimidating him to leave, or they may have actually been threatening to kill him. Either way, 
they wanted nothing to do with Elisha. And by implication, they wanted nothing to do with God. In verse 24 says that Elisha calls down a curse on them. And once again, we need to be careful because the word used for curse means to pronounce a judgment. Elisha didn't have some magic spell that he chanted and caused this to happen. Elisha just declared God's righteous judgment on them. And then two bears suddenly come thrashing out of the woods and mauled 42 of them. Imagine the fear and the chaos of that moment. Running, screaming, claws slashing, brutal pounding, teeth piercing, ripped flesh, broken bones. We don't like to think about the wrath of God. We don't like to think about the wrath of God. We don't like to think about God's judgment. But it's something that is very, very real. However, God's wrath is never unjust. It's never unfair. It's never too much. It's never too strong. And God's wrath, God's judgment, only falls upon those who have rejected him. God's wrath only is, is, is taken out on those who have rejected him. The Bible tells us that once we sin, we become guilty of sin, and in our guilt, we deserve the wrath of God. The only escape from that, the only escape from that judgment is to accept God's gift of grace. Ephesians 2, verse 3 and 4, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Because we, by nature, are sinners, we are deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you've been saved. Our eternity beyond this life is a reflection of the life that we choose now, if we live a life where we seek God, where we love God, desire God, if our faith is placed in Christ as Lord and Savior, then God's grace is over our sins and our eternity is in heaven with the Lord. But if we live a life without God, neglecting God, with no honest desire for God, then we still hold the responsibility of our sins. And our eternity will be where that punishment is given. Rejecting God means that we've refused his gift of grace. Rejecting God means that we don't want his forgiveness. We are rejecting it. And God, who is perfect and just, doesn't let sin just go unpunished then. He doesn't let it off the hook it still needs to be punished. That's the wrath of God. It wasn't Elisha that released these bears. It was God. And it was God in his judgment. So what can we learn from Elisha's visit to Bethel? 
other than you must be nice to bald men, which, by the way, I want you to remember that one. That's significant. Remember that one, too. But what can we learn other than that? Well, I think we can learn that refusing God is a dangerous thing. Refusing or rejecting God is a dangerous thing. When it comes to letting God into our life, it's better to welcome him instead of trying to keep him out. Leanne and I like to, we like to travel. We like to go see family and friends. We like to go see new places. We like to travel. And now when we go, we don't usually book a hotel. We usually get like an Airbnb or a Verbo. We get something like, it's a private residence that people will rent out. We like to do it that way. Uh, Sometimes it's a room in a house. Sometimes it's the whole house. Sometimes it's an apartment or a condo. But here's the thing. Every time we've done this, whether we, wherever, wherever we have rented at, Airbnb, Verbo, a room, a condo, a house, whatever we've done, every time we've gone, there's at least one room that has a door locked. It's either a closet or it's a room or it's somewhere because that's something that is the owner's. They've got their belongings in there. They've got their stuff in there. And that's not for us to use to have. It might be a closet. It might be a room. It's somewhere private. One place we stayed at was was the basement of a home. It had a kitchen, a living area, a bathroom, a bedroom, its own private entrance. But there was a door that was locked because that was the door that took you upstairs. Upstairs is where the owners lived. They didn't want us coming up and saying, hey, how's it going? You know, they keep, there's always a door that is locked. When it comes to letting God into our lives, what we're doing is we're giving him the master key. He gets to go into any room. He gets to go into the closet. He gets to go upstairs. He gets to go downstairs. He gets any room in our life. He gets access to everything. That's what having Jesus as Lord means. It means God is welcome and wanted everywhere in our life. And sometimes I think we have a tendency to want to keep that one space locked and closed off. We have that tendency to keep that one area locked where we don't even want God in. God, I'll I'll give you this, but don't ask for that. God, I've got my limits. Don't expect or don't push too far. God, I'll go to church and I'll tithe, but I'm not going to forgive that person. God, I'll read a devotion and I'll pray every morning, but I'm not going to tithe a 10% to you. God, I will go to church, I'll go to Sunday school, I'll even go to Bible study, but I'm not going to let you change who I am. That door is locked. It's off limits. Isn't that pretty much just like standing on the road in the town and telling the prophet that you don't want him there, that he's not welcome? Get out of here. If we, if we open up everything, if we let God in, if we let him have full access to our lives, then God has the freedom to move and do some incredible things. 
If you let him in, just watch what he does in your life. But when we shut him out and forbid him into certain areas of our life, then we're putting a limit on God and we've limited what he can do in our lives. I'm not a big fan of the message paraphrase of the Bible, but sometimes when, it's, when it translates something or paraphrases something, I really kind of like it. In Romans 12:1, this is what it says in the message. It says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. That's Romans 12, 1, paraphrased by the message, and I really like that. Take our everyday ordinary life and place it to God before God as an offering. Maybe another way, a shorter way to even say all of that is just to say, it's like standing at the door, holding the door open, saying, welcome, come on in, anywhere you want. On the flip side of that, though, is rejection. A closed door is a rejection. The story of Elisha and these bears seems rather extreme. It's violent. It's tragic. But I think it's violent and tragic because it reminds us that there's an even greater tragedy. All of us have family or friends who've rejected God's presence and said he's not welcome. They've told God that he's not welcome in their life, and by rejecting him, they have, for the moment, sealed their fate. The judgment that came upon these young men with Elisha was a judgment for those actions in that moment. God has already determined and set a judgment for those who refuse and reject him. John chapter 3, verse 18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. We stand condemned because of our sin. You could say it like this. You could say it's our default position. We can't change that. We are born with an inclination, a nature towards sin. We all at some point willingly, intentionally choose sin. But when we accept Jesus, we are condemned no longer. When we reject Jesus, we remain condemned. You could almost say it like this. The bears are in the woods and Jesus can keep us safe but we have to let him stand in front of us. We have to let him in so that he could save us. We have a choice. We can choose to accept or reject the grace of God. Without the grace of God, we remain condemned in our sin. Now, if you ever spend any time out in hiking areas, some of those trails that are in bear country, um, you might see a sign that says, bears are known to be active on this trail. That sign is meant to be a warning. This morning, the word of God is a warning to us. When those young men mocked and threatened the prophet, it was a rejection of God, and that rejection led to a brutal judgment. 
Finally, did you know, um, there are some suggestions on how to survive a bear attack. Uh, there's a little saying, if it's black, fight back. If it's brown, lay down. If it's white, good night. Uh, if it's a black bear, you're supposed to stand your ground, make lots of noise, fight back. No matter what, don't run, don't climb a tree. Um, if it's a grizzly bear, you're supposed to stay quiet, lie down in the fetal position with your hands over the back of your neck, uh, and play dead. And if the bear happens to attack you and start flinging you around and tossing you around and what have you, um, if you come to, uh, continue to play dead, because sometimes the bears will watch to see if their victims get back up. That's the advice for a grizzly bear. And then the advice for a polar bear is, sorry, you're out of luck. <laughs> um, apparently that's the most fierce one. I've hiked. I've hiked where there are black bears. I've hiked where there are grizzly bears. I'm not going to hike where there are polar bears because of the bears and because that's cold. Uh, you know. um, actually, you know, bear attacks are very minimal. It's a very small percentage uh, of bear attacks. On a, on a grand scale. Um, I'm grateful that those are small statistics. I'm even more grateful, though, that the judgment I deserve because of my sin was taken by my Savior, Jesus. I'm giving him my entire life. And I'm going to keep trying to warn those that I know and love about the danger of rejecting God. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment to rate this podcast. May the word of God be living and active in your life.